Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA employs brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call one 800 245 6000 That's one 800 245 6000 Or visit taxnetworkusa.com slash victor. Taxnetworkusa.com slash victor. Welcome to the listeners of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. This is our Saturday or weekend edition, and we usually do things either cultural or always usually historical and often military. And today we are on our course of looking at milit- warfare in history, and we will t- we will be looking at the American Revolution. But first, we have a couple of news stories to talk about. Stay with us, and we'll be right back. Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship, and its decline based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, how progressive elites, tribalism, and globalization are destroying the idea of America, the Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hanson today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start hillsdale.edu slash vdh folks we're sponsored today by donors trust the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving in times of crisis 
Those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax advantaged, aligned with your values and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Just News. Welcome back. Victor is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. You can find him at his website, Victor Hansen. Dot com That's H-A-N-S-O-N. And it is called The Blade of Perseus. And you can join us for $5 a month or $50 a year and read his ultra VDH ultra articles, um, which are extensive and are exclusive to subscribers. So please come subscribe. And Victor, um, Trying to think of something positive. Um, I do think that Donald Trump came out and we're recording right when he's just given his speech after his indictment and he came out fighting and uh, illustrating the injustice of the accusations against him by looking at the record of everybody else that has done even worse things with classified material than he himself has. <laughs> so, or that the fact that he really didn't, um, since he was president, he had the legal right to do what he yeah. did, whereas others did not. So I thought that was a very good speech. What, what were your thoughts on it? Well, it concentrated, there's two wars going on. There's the legal war and there's the political war. The political war says this should have never been, this indictment should have never been filed. And Trump's point in that speech and elsewhere is you could do this with anybody. You could have done it with Hillary. You could have done it with Bill. Any one of us, if you take a federal prosecutor and said, I'm going to find out if I can indict Victor for something, they're going to find something. Not that I did anything, but any one of our listeners, that that's Trump's point, that if he wasn't Donald Trump, then they wouldn't do it. And then the legal matter is, I think his chief point is that he was trying to make the the Presidential Records Act, basically, as we said on the earlier, there's no there there. It's just a bureaucratic transgression or it's a civil matter or it's, you know, it's something like, oh, when he said to one person, suppose I could have declassified that. What he what he's going to say is I could have gone through the rigmarole of doing it, but I didn't because I consider it was my papers. Right. Yeah. And, he, and you know, he. The only thing I would caution him about when he calls the special prosecutor a thug, I'm not saying Mr. Smith isn't because he's a political and is, he should have recused himself. If I had been special prosecutor and I had a record like he did of going against prominent Republicans and, by the way, failing, and my wife was had just done a 
glamorous, obsequious, toadish biography documentary of Michelle, I would have accused myself because I would I couldn't be, you know, disinterested. He didn't. That's his job. He's a hitman for the left. But you don't have to call him a thug. So when you call him a thug, 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 you're getting very close to uh, obstruction because you can't attack a federal prosecutor person if you're a Republican. Remember during the 10 star probe, special counsel probe of Clinton, James Carville got on TV every night and said, Ken Starr is just a, he's just a tobacco lawyer. That's all he is. He just owned by Marlboro. That's all he, he just attacked him personally. And I thought, wow, that's obstructing justice. You can't do that. My mom was a appellate court judge and she used to get very angry because, um, when they had some high profile, high profile cases, every once in a while, uh, a lawyer would say something about a judge, you know, attack them personally or a prosecuting attorney with the idea that you can demonize them in the public realm and that influences a jury or their reputation. So that's something that I think he should be careful about, mm-hmm. even though that not that he doesn't deserve it, Mr. As I said, but other than that, you're right. He's got, he has a two prong. He's got good lawyers. I think he's got the weight of the law on his side and he's got a wonderful political argument. And then <laughs> the subtext of this whole thing is there's a tick, 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 tick bomb. And it's called Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Burisma, Ukraine. And it's mm. just it's ticking. And if that thing blows up, it's going to make water. We've never had, we've never even been close to this, that a sitting president of the United States of America was offered a bribe by a foreign government and he took it and it's on video or excuse me, it's on audio or there's some written documentation of that. And I don't know how you get out of that. You say, well, I was he was he was vice president of the United States. He can't take money from foreign governments. So we'll see. And and I'm not going to prejudge it. But if that is true, that's the biggest story of my lifetime. We'll see. And that yeah. makes it makes it all sense. And if he's if that's true, then everything he his Justice Department is doing against Trump just fades. It's just I'm trying to take out somebody because I'm going down kind of narrative. And he's he's going to blow up the Democratic Party. Just if that like, blows up, what will um, the imp- how will that impact our commitment to the Ukraine? Do you think that's, that's going to be a very good question, because. As I said on our earlier broadcast, Ukraine has the third largest military budget. It's not theirs. They didn't earn it. They didn't create it. It was They're dying heroically to defend their motherland, but it's from NATO, but mostly from the United States. And it's, you know, it's it was over $100 billion the first 12 months. And now I think it's, as we start the next year, I think it's gonna, it's on a schedule to be over like $120 billion. We've given them 1 million artillery shells. We don't have them. 1 million, 155 millimeters. We had depots in the Middle East in case there's a Middle East war and we have to get over there quickly. And so Israel was a depository. So we've depleted those deposits. Really? Yes. Don't tell Iran that. Yeah. Well, it's going to take, no, it's going to take five years for us to gear up. This country is slothful and fat. And it's spending all of its money on popular culture, video games. We do all this uh, pop, you know, I'm so sick of it. And then we don't do the things that really matter, like have a war production board and defense industry that can gear up. We're going to be short Patriot missile battles, Patriot missiles, Javelin missiles, everything. And yes. so, so at some point, 
people are going to say, who endangered us and put us with Taiwan on the horizon, China, et cetera? Who put us in this precarious situation and gave away everything to Ukraine? And why did he give everything to Ukraine? And yeah. people are going to say, well, he fired a prosecutor, Mr. Shoko, that was uh, that was investigating his son and himself. And then he bragged about it and the presence of the Council on Foreign Relations. And then on top of that, the next person is going to ask, how is that going to affect our China policy? And there's going to be somebody that's going to stand up and say, well, when you put your son on Air Force Two and you and your son go to China and he conducts a multi, multi-million dollar business with Chinese energy companies and you end up enriched yourself, well, then maybe that's why you allowed your your subordinate Sullivan and Blinken to be humiliated in Anchorage in March of 2021. With they didn't even fight back when the Chinese dressed them down, and then maybe that's yeah. why they're ramming our jets with impunity or getting close to them. They're trying to ram ships. They're warning us about a nuclear conflagration if we go defend Taiwan. They had a Chinese balloon that goes across the United States, and all the administration did was serially lie for eight days. Oh, it was too high. Oh, it was over water. Oh, it didn't see anything. Oh, they complete lies. And then we haven't even gotten into the Chinese Wuhan virology lab where Biden just goes, nah, I guess I was wrong. I told everybody it was a pangolin and a bat. Hmm. Uh, uh, we're working with China. But apparently, according to the Sunday Times, it just came out. What did they say that the whole bat pangolin thing is bogus, as we always know? We had our guest, Stephen Quay, essentially say that, and he was quoted in that article. But, oh, wow. But more importantly, the People's Liberation Army was in control of that laboratory. And more importantly, even there, there was almost as if there was a hint that we were lucky that the SARS-2 virus leaked out that kills 1% of its infected because they were working on viruses uh, that could have killed 25% of everybody who's infected, could have wiped out whole whole societies. And they're still working on them, apparently. But they, you know, they got out. And I don't know what the effect of this will. But if I, you read between the lines in the Sunday Times article, there is a very strong suggestion that the Chinese military was working on some kind of bioweapon. Yes. And their Miles Yu has already hinted in, in an article, I think, that there may be some indication that they they were working on virology uh, enhancement vis-a-vis DNA, i.e., maybe we can find a bioweapon that would protect that would protect people of Chinese ancestry in China, but they wouldn't be as susceptible to other people. So it was a pretty wow. it's pretty dangerous right now, and this president seems to be oblivious to both the Ukrainian and Chinese threat. And you can draw your own conclusions. We'll see. Yeah. Yes. Well, given all that, and given the fact that there's record numbers consider that consider themselves independent, a Gallup poll has that at 90, oh, sorry, 49% of the voting population are considered independents. I was wondering, um, what do you think is the possibility of a third party in 2024? Seventy percent don't want Biden to run, um, and he seems to be the Democrats' only hope. So well, maybe they, a they third keep party. saying the left keeps saying that Trump will vote if he, if he doesn't get the nomination. I don't believe that. I believe that, as I said 
at least two occasions that they should all pledge right now to support the nominee. Trump should do it because, A, he's ahead and he thinks he's going to get the nomination. It would be good for DeSantis to endorse him now. And then, B, uh, they broke their word in 2016. People like John Kasich, Carly Fiorina, other people who had failed to get the nomination had sworn they would all back the nominee with the idea that Trump had zero chance of getting it. And when he got it, they said, screw you, we're not going to do it. And then I think if DeSantis wins the nomination, Trump would be bound to honor that commitment. I don't see him. I don't see him at 78 years old going out and starting a bull moose. And the last time that's happened with a president that came back, that was, as you remember, uh, Teddy Roosevelt in 2012. And all it did was destroy William Howard Taft's Republican reelection efforts and hand the election to the, one of the most leftist presidents we've ever had. By the way, a racist, Woodrow Wilson, who won that 2012 uh, election. And when you look at the vote tally, Taft came in third, as I recall, but Taft and Roosevelt overwhelmingly combined vote would have beaten Wilson easily. Yeah. So it's not a good it's not a good model to follow if you're Trump. So I don't think he's going to do it. I think it's more likely on the Democratic side, because if Joe Biden says, I'm not going to debate Robert Kennedy Jr., no way, no how. And he's pulling 25 to 30 percent of the electorate and. Joe Biden is non compos mentes, then I think you might see something. The only thing that's protecting Biden is you can't get to the left of him. So he re, he rebooted himself. It's no no longer good old Joe Biden from Scranton, the Catholic anti-abortionist, the, uh, you know, the school school busing is a racial jungle and all that crap. Praising segregationists trying to go to the democratic right, way democratic right, i.e. neo-confederates. He did in the past. Now he's given a blank check. His attitude is basically, Jill, I'm so tired. Just tell them whatever they want. I'll just just give me the script. I'll do it. I just want to go. I want to be home at two o'clock every weekend. I want to be at home. I just have to do it. So you tell the squad, you tell Michelle and Barack, you tell Elizabeth Warren, you tell Bernie, whatever they draw up, just put it into the teleprompter. And then I'll get angry and I'll say semi-fascist and ultra I'll do whatever they want, but just leave me. I just want to finish and be left. That's his attitude. Yes. Yeah. And that's very valuable to the left. That's better than having an independent thinker, just kind of a prop, which is what he is. He's a construct. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if somebody will come up on the left to run against him. I know the only one that looks like he might be able to is RFK. Right. Yeah, you, they're not going to go. Yeah, they're not going to go to the left. Robert Kennedy won't go to the left of him. He will yeah. be an idiosyncratic, you know. Maybe uh, he'll go to the middle rather than. Yes, Joe he'll, go, he'll, he'll go. He'll go to the middle left. He'll say the vaccination uh, were dangerous. The lockdowns were disastrous. We're killing people on the border. We need a, you know, he's probably for a wall, things like that. He'll yeah. kind of go back a little bit to Bill Clinton in the 90s. Yeah. The old Bill Clinton. He, he would be a good third party. <laughs> well, if he goes, if he if he were to run, I mean, they're going to be offering him. First, they're going to remember the Democratic playbook. First, they try to destroy you. So they're going to bring up everything about his annulment, where his second or first wife was Catholic. And she mm-hmm. killed killed herself after he divorced her. And, wow. and they're going to imply that he had some type of pre while he was married. He had an interest in his present wife. 
I think she was a TV mm. TV actress. They're going to go after her. And then when that doesn't work, if it doesn't work, and then they're going to try to buy him off. Yeah, yeah. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and get, I don't mean literally by money. I mean, they're going to bring him in or give him, I don't know, some federal appointment or a medal or something. That's what they do. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, You know, they always say they that they bought off Bernie Sanders um, when Hillary was running. And I would just always felt like it, they literally did buy him off. Like I don't he know got what he did. Money out of yeah. He ended yeah. up with three three beautiful homes. One yeah. on a, one on a lake in Vermont, a Washington nice condo, and then I guess he had a Burlington home. Yeah. And his wife basically bankrupted a college campus and walked off with a big settlement when it imploded under her directorship. But well. he remember that. Once Jim Clyburn engineered the black vote, which was 40% of the electorate or more in South Carolina, Biden was flailing. He you know, he wasn't any good in Iowa and New Hampshire. And then he was flailing. And then all of a sudden they got the black vote. And he, and Clyburn told him, if we, if I get out and I, and we in Nevada and the Hispanic workers in a union in, in Nevada and the black vote in, in South Carolina, if, we give you the election, then we own you. And he said, yeah, you own me. And then he won. And then they just lined up everybody. And they said, Elizabeth Warren, you're out. Pete Buttigieg, you're out. And Bernie, you're out. Now, what do you want to get out? And that's what they meant by buying off. Pete, I want to be, I want to be a, a cabinet secretary. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, I want to have veto power over appointments. Uh, Bernie, I want to have my agenda. And that's what yeah. they did. And yeah. it's pretty much their agenda. They won. Yeah. All right. Let's take a break and then come back and talk about the American Revolution. Stay with us and we'll be right back. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com fieldofgreens.com. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. 
Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash VICTOR50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com slash victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-5-0, and use the code victor50, that's code victor50, at factormeals.com slash victor50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Welcome back. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. And um, with this weekend edition, we want to look at the American Revolution and place it in the greater scope of both warfare in general, the history of warfare, but also just is its significance in Western civilization. So, Victor, as you would like to talk about the American Revolution, but I, I hope we can answer those two things as well in your conversation. Well, we know what it was fought. And the we Americans were very lucky that our mother country was Britain and not Prussia or Russia or France. Let's be honest, because it was a parliamentary monarchy and it had a liberal enlightenment. And so there were some atrocities, but they didn't do what most colonial powers do to rebellious subjects. That's one thing. Second thing is uh, the grievances were about taxation without representation and autonomy. And remember, they had a in most of those 13 colonies, they had a British governor, but they had a colonial legislature and they kind of created their own Frankensteinian monster once the. British and Scottish Enlightenment had begun, and they were philosophers and politicians talking about liberalizing and empowering the British system that filtered into the Americans said, well, we just want to do what you do. And so we want our colonial legislatures to what? Be more powerful than an appointed and unelected British colonial governor. And that was kind of the the issue along with taxes, but they were pretty well off. They were very affluent. America's much richer country than Britain. And they had something else they understood, and that is um, they didn't have to win the war. All they had to do was lose it. The distance from northern Massachusetts all the way down to South Carolina is, is you know, it's, it's 15, 1700 miles. And how can you cover all that? And they were even now at that point, they were starting to go on the other side of Appalachia. So there was no way in the world that an army at maybe its greatest was 35,000 or 40,000. And a lot of them were Hessian missionaries that could cover and occupy. So the strategy was that every time the British uh, took a town, they took Philadelphia, they took New York, but they had to occupy it. And when they occupied, they had to have troops from somewhere. And all the British, all the Americans had to do was two things. They had to, when they declared their independence, 
1776. But when they started fighting at Lexington and Concord, they didn't have to lose. And they didn't. They fought him to a draw. You know, Paul Revere's ride, the shot heard around the world, all that stuff. And then at Bunker Hill, they re- they repulsed a frontal assault at Bunker Hill. They, gave, they inflicted a thousand casualties. At that point, Britain, uh, you know, they hadn't really... They had fought the so-called Seven Years' War from 17, I guess it was 1756 to 1763. And we called it here the, a little bit earlier, but we called it the French and Indian War. But basically, uh, Britain and Prussia had fought France and Australia and Spain, and they were tend to be a little more the Catholic countries. And the British had won. But the point I'm making is the result of that, Version That was what uh, Churchill called the First World War, because everybody got involved worldwide. And the theater in North America was over French Canada. And the French only had about 50,000, 60,000 settlers. And the British, of course, had two million, two and a half million. So it was not going to be a French victory. But the point I'm making is it gave the colonials a lot of battle experience. And they were very good militia. And they helped and they understood how the British fought. That was very important. And then more importantly, they alienated the British, did the French. And so when this war started, the moment Britain couldn't put a lid on it and they were waiting for one big battle. And when when they won at Saratoga in 1777, then I think it was over because they had the Prussian von Steuben came, came in and he was a Prussian drill. He wrote the book, drill book. He drilled the American troops for conventional battles. Then you had the French cutting a deal with us 1777 to 1780. They had formal treaties. They brought in all of their uh, some of their Robin show. They brought in Lafayette, Rambachot, or whatever his name was. They brought in supplies. They brought in the French fleet to keep the ports open. The Spanish then uh, were still bitter that Britain had taken a lot of their North American territories. They were allowing arms and supplies to come in from Spanish-controlled territories. So basically, France and Spain were on our side because of the French and Indian or what we call the Seven Years' War, and because they didn't extinguish it. And and they had to strangle the the American infant in its cradle, and they couldn't do it. And by the time they couldn't do it, French and Prussians had helped drill the American army. So at the two, the, the, the war was decided at two battles. And one was, as I said, 1777 at Saratoga, when we defeated a conventional British army. And then, of course, the main one at uh, Yorktown in 1778 when Cornwallis surrendered and they supposedly played, you know, the world upside down, <laughs> the British flutists. But the war didn't end for the next, you know, it went on to 1783, but it was it was over with at that point. And, yeah. the, and so and then we had people like Francis Marion with unconventional swamp, all that. But what I'm getting to is when you have a huge colony like that, and you have people with more natural wealth than the mother country, and they're up to two or three million people, and they're spread out almost 2,000 miles in prosperous settlements. And you have to control that. You have to, you basically have to do one of two things. You're going to have to kill a lot of people, and the British had no record of doing that, really. And then, two, you had to win one of three groups. There was 
the revolutionaries, the neutrals who were waiting to see who won, and there was the loyalists. And unfortunately for them, they didn't get more. The revolutionaries were almost 40 to 50% of the population. So they needed them to be about 20%. So the loyalists, loyalists, and then they left to Canada, a lot of them did. And they left the field of battle. So what was it? It wasn't going to work. They didn't have the the savagery to put it down. They couldn't appeal to enough uh, colonists to be loyal or neutral. And it was basically, we are an enlightened British parliamentary system that is moving toward checks on our own crown, but you can't do what we're doing. And that's not a winning message. No. And it really, the... it, it really made a big difference because, as you know, this was the prelude then to the French Revolution, Napoleon and uh, the uh, challenge to British power. Because people looked at the American Revolution and said, if they can do it, then maybe we can do it in Europe and both have a revolution and challenge British power, sea power in France. Napoleon mm -hmm. thought he could do it. It was much different. One thing to remember about the the American Revolution that is that it wasn't a class revolution. It wasn't the poor or being exploited in a colony like or the 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 population is being oppressed by the monarchy in the, in the sense of the French Revolution. It wasn't a totality. It wasn't a 360-degree revolution. There's no word, you know, give me liberty or give me death. Liberty, freedom, but there's no equality, fraternity. As you, liberty, fraternity, equality in the French Revolution. That revolution was holistic. It was, we're going to make everybody equal on the back end. And the French Enlightenment that spurred that, encouraged the French Revolution, was very different than what people, John Locke was writing about, or David Hume in the uh, British Isle uh, Enlightenment. They were much more radical. And, you know, nobody in America was saying, we're going to change the days of the week or the month or the foundational year, or we're going to change the names of people, or we're going to let out prisoners, or we're going to destroy the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church. None of that. It was very, it was a, it was a beginning of a very capable middle class that felt they had worked very hard. They had all this open land. They were prosperous and they felt that people far distant away a, had no business to tell them that, that they had to be taxed for their own protection because they didn't feel they needed any protection. The French and Indian War had told them they fought pretty well. So why should they be taxed to pay for a colonial governor they didn't need and troops they didn't want? And so it was a pretty good message. And Britain's idea was, well, your subjects and people had warned George Third and Lord North, you can't win. There's no way in the world. I mean, Washington, you could argue, lost every battle he fought almost. But he was central to the victories because he had that one, if I can survive at Valley Forge, forget about Philadelphia. That's just one city. Forget about New York. We can take it back. But don't give up and just make sure we get French support, Spanish support. And at one time, there was only after Valley Forge, there was only 5,000 people. That was when that almost we almost lost. But yeah. as long as he was able to keep the revolution going, all of the long-term factors that would determine success were in our favor. He was a great man, Washington. He's, he's radically underestimated because we don't know as much about him as we do Lincoln and other presidents. But the idea that he kept that coalition of 
you know, he had some pretty brilliant generals, too. If you look at Gates and Green and Knox, you know, and compare them to Cornwallis and Gage on the other side. So we were very lucky that we had good commanders. Well, I have a question about that, because you said they understood the British way of war. And yet when the British first show up, and I think it's the Battle of Brooklyn, it's, you know, out on on the island and they fought. But he the British commander just sent George Washington's troops into disarray. I mean, they they couldn't do anything against that. Yes, but they had they by, by the time they were forming because. The the revolution broke out in 1775, and they won the Battle of Saratoga in 1777, and they won decisively Yorktown, I guess, 1778. So it wasn't very long. They learned, they had known about, the, the, it was really because they had a Prussian drill masters that, that taught them how to drill and order, and they had French uh, supplies and encouragement. But they understood they had fought with the British in the French and Indian War, and they understood how the British fought conventional weapons, but they uh, warfare, but they also waged a simultaneous uh, unconventional war. That wasn't going to determine that you know, if to, you're going to win the war, you have to take a huge British army of 17, 20,000 people and destroy them on the field of battle and humiliate them. They did that. They didn't destroy them, but they just humiliated them at at Yorktown. Yorktown. And that was it. But part of the that was why the revolution was going to win. But part of the reason the British got disheartened is they could not stop insurrectionary activity outside the battlefield. That means if they had a colonial outpost in a small part of Massachusetts or New York or or Virginia, it could be attacked in unconventional ways by American raiders the Green Mountain Boys or or the Swamp Fox and those people. And they didn't and they had pop, uh, popular support. And there were atrocities, you know, that were committed to against the population, not to harbor them, but not to the extent that modern warfare, as you saw in Germany or Italy or Japan, what the Japanese did in China or what the British did. I mean, the, the Germans did in Russia or Poland, for example. So. We were very isn't lucky. There, we were very isn't... lucky we had Washington as a commander, both political and military. We're very lucky we had, as I said, people like Knox, the artillery officer, John Paul Jones on the high seas, very great uh, military uh, naval commander. Naval. And then you had people who were, they weren't the peasants that stormed the Bastille, is what I'm trying to say. They were very educated, hardworking. You, a leadership, and they had a yeoman class of farmers that were independent, autonomous, and were, were very capable. Yes. And when they won, they were also very capable of writing a constitution. They're often referred to as the constitutionalists. So they had a whole class of people that were used to writing such that's contracts. What I that's what I don't understand about the whole left-wing movement. I, when you look at the people, John Jay, John Hancock, Madison, Monroe, Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, Franklin. There's never been people like that before. They were just amazing. They were a product of the British legal and political tradition and the uh, the confidence of, you know, uh, almost 200 years on their own in this brutal 
North American continent. And out of that mixture, they created these very confident, very educated, very practical people who had a very cynical view of human nature. And they created this checks and balance system. Nobody's ever been able to emulate it. And how you would la- you would attack those people as racist, slave owned What would be the alternative? What is the alternative? There's no alternative. You can go anywhere around the world. What was Africa doing at this time? What were Native Americans? They always talk about the Iroquois Council. That was just a bunch of people getting together and saying, how do we split up the loop? And then, that's not democracy. I'm sorry. And... You know, Plato said that. He said, yeah, democracy is in everybody's brain. When thieves rob a bank, then they split, they split up the loop. But that doesn't that majority vote is innate to people, but it's not a system. Yeah. And uh, so there was no alternative. There was nothing like them. No. And, and so and yes, some of them own slaves. And the word slave is from Slav. And during this period from essentially 1500 to 1800, there was about 17 million slaves sent to from Africa to the Middle East. And there was about 11 million sent or maybe 10 million. I think that's a high number to the New World, many of them to Brazil and the Caribbean. But the Ottoman Empire had enslaved for its 500 years, probably about somewhere between 40 and 50 million Southern Russians and Balkan people. And that's where the word came into currency. And and so I, I and slavery wasn't necessarily it had been there from antiquity. It was not race based until the exploration. And then when people resurrected the Aristotelian idea that there were people who were natural slaves that deserved it. That's what Aristotle said. Slavery is morally acceptable if people use enslave the right people. And people had kind of rejected that in antiquity. Alcadamus, the rhetorician, said no man was ever born a slave. So they went to Africa. They saw people who didn't have sophisticated navigation, middle entry, and they said, well, they're, they're natural slaves. It wasn't based on race-based, that, they that they're black. They could have been pink. And the Ottomans had the same idea that people who were not Muslims are morally inferior, racially inferior. And they were poor people in the Balkans and, as I said, around the Black Sea. And they just enslaved them in mass, whether it's the sultan's mother in the harem or the janissary who's kidnapped at six or the grand vizier or the people who were the miners or died working, being worked to death on Islamic farms. But it's that's too complicated for America at this point in its lifespan. We just have to have a binary of you're a victim, you're going to pay, and I'm a victim. You're a victimizer, you're going to pay, and you, you're going to have to confess and apologize. And I'm a victim, and I get stuff from you. And we're going to make new rules, and that's that doesn't work. Well, since you brought up slavery, some of the there were slaves that fought, I think, on both sides of the in the american revolution so what's how significant was that i think at yorktown there was a lot of american there was a lot of american blacks that had a prominent role as early as bunker hill lexington but that that goes back to antiquity you know every greek hoplite had a i guess you'd call him a batman a doulos or an oikites a household or farm slave that went to war with him and the spartans had the hel- helotai the helots 
And there were 10,000 of them that show, may have, may or may not have showed up at the Battle of Plataea, depending on the source. But slaves were always attached to their master, and they tended to do, follow that, that master's political beliefs. The British had a propaganda idea that they were uh, going to liberate slaves only because, you know, they didn't need them. But they had, you know, the British were very enlightened people. They had, they were soon to outlaw the slave trade. And, but this idea that the American Revolution or the discovery of America was based on the, to perpetuate slavery. And the British were these anti-slavery idealists fighting these racist Americans. It's just a joke. Yeah. And finally, then, too, how about the Native American role in this revolution? Well, that, that was a tribal role. It depended on the particular tribe you belonged to, Iroquois or Mohawk. or. But that started with a French-Indian War in 1753 because, as I said, the French were outnumbered 30 to 40 to 1 in North America, in Quebec. And they wanted their independence. And, of course, Britain was going to consolidate all of North America. It kind of given South America to Spain, but it wanted to get, I think the deal was that they were trying to get Spain out of the, everything east of the Mississippi. And then Spain would have west of the Mississippi in the south and France could finagle uh, in the northern part. But it was to get the entire eastern seaboard from way up in north all the way down to Florida as British. And that was the result of the uh, of the Seven Years' War in its theater in the United States. And so when you have, if you're in the American Revolution, if you're fighting the Seven Years' War against the British to maintain an enclave of an autonomous France in the New World, then you have to have, you have to have Native American troops. And that's what they did, or irregular. So the French were able to appeal much more easily to Native Americans because their message was, we hate the British and they're colonialists and just we just want to be free like you do. So if we win, you get to have everything. They didn't have enough people. They had no idea that they were ever going to have two or three million people and colonize and make a huge French nation here like the British did. So obviously, if you're a Native American, you should throw in your lot with the French, because if they win, then you win. And you, they had a common hatred of the British. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the treaty was signed, I think, in 1783. It's in called Paris. the Treaty of, yeah, treaty of Paris. Paris. Yes. And I, I think that that was one of the things that the Native Americans were very lucky that the colonists came from this contract tradition that was honored. So when the treaty was signed, it was going to be honored. And when the Americans then in turn made treaties with the Indians, uh, they they were honored. And and I think that was, I always I, I know that, see they, that they were, yeah, they were treated very badly. But given the, the period of the times, when you have one Native American to 200 square miles in North America, and you have 200 Europeans per square miles in the slums of Dublin or London, you know what I'm saying, or Paris, or then, and they have the ability to go to this other land, and the people in that land don't have the ability to navigate to go to Europe or vice versa. Then you have an ascent, and that's gonna, that's what happens. That's the same thing with 
Native American tribal wars. So it wasn't that one side was morally superior. It was just that there was all this open land and there was very few Native Americans given the size of the land. There were millions of them, but as far as population density, it was very small. And so there was obviously going to be an exodus of exploited poor people from Europe that would get on ships and go and find all this land. When you say it all, all of the 70 years of the fierce Indian, American Indian Wars, when it was all said and done, here we are. And there's 9 million, I think, 9 or 10 million Native Americans today. And reservation land, as I understand it, is larger than 30 states. If it was an independent state, it's, it's almost autonomous. It's larger than 30 of the independent states, not put together, but equal. So the Native American reservations, I think, rank in something like 29 of all the states. Excuse me. They rank about 19 as far as a autonomous region in square mileage. And of course, that's a lot of land and a lot of it's very rich and they continue to uh, the casinos and everything. So it it's not a nice, it wasn't an easy thing. It wasn't, um, there was atrocities on both sides, but the point was that that tradition treated native peoples uh, a little better than the alternative. If you look at yeah, what the that's Spanish what I did. was yeah, that was my point. I was going to say if the Chinese had conquered them, there would have been no contract tradition well, by which they could, or the Spanish when or Cortez. When Cortez went into Tenochtitlan, he he obliterated it. He obliterated it block mm. by block. There was a Aztec nation of four million people, and when he was mm. done, there was probably fifty thousand people left. Yeah, he, and you know, I, I mean, in the Mexican subcontinent, there was probably over 70 years, seven to eight million people died of whooping cough or pneumonia or malaria or yellow fever, etc. But yeah. Uh, and on the other hand, if you read Bernal Diaz or Gomorrah or any of these early chroniclers, they looked at the, the Aztecs and they said, we can beat these people because they're horrific people. And the Tlaxcalans are the, their big rivals, and they're harvesting thousands of young children and sacrificing, tearing their hearts out, eating them. They're cannibals, and they sacrifice. They're murderers in an industrial sense. And so the, Cortez only, we're getting off topic, but he never had at any one time more than 1,500 people. Mm. His army at one point got to 2,500, but that was after it was 1,500, then it went up, and then it was completely obliterated at the Noche Triste. Not complete, but he lost 800 men. Yeah. And then when he went back the next year and conquered them, he only had 1,500, but he had 40,000 Tlaxcalan. Yeah. And, that, and so you, when people look at history like that, people that say, well, Cortez was a monster, maybe, maybe not, but they should ask themselves, why did so many Native Americans want to exterminate the Aztecs? They had wanted to before Cortez got there. What did the Aztecs do to the, their neighbors that made them hate it? Well, was it because they sacrificed people? No, they all did that. Was it because they ate people? No, they all did that. But the difference was they did it on a scale that nobody had ever seen before. Thousands of people. Yeah. And that was on intolerable. Yeah. 
Well, to get back to the Native Americans, uh, so they they were I. I mean, I know, like you said, there were atrocities on both sides and there were contracts made with Native Americans that were broken at times. But nonetheless, what they could get, they could eke out because of that contract tradition, which they wouldn't yeah. have been able to do with any other power that no, had. They weren't. It's, that the same, might have, it's the same thing today. That's human nature being what it is. The more magnanimous you are, the more you're hated. I mean, there's an old, I, I grew up farming with Sikhs, very capable Indian immigrants. And I once was talking about somebody, I was out irrigating, and I said to my Sikh neighbor, I, I liked a lot, a great deal. I liked him a lot. Tough as nails, but he taught me a lot about human nature and farming. I came home one day and I said, hey, this SOB, I voted to hire that guy. And then he came into my office and bitched about how people were cruel to him and the department. I went over and talked to the chairman on his behalf. And then, uh, you know, I told him I, I was supposed to peer review his class. And as soon as that guy got tenure, he turned on me and he he's trying to get me fired. And you know what the guy told me? My what? Sikh friend. Goes, well, what good? He goes, I'm going to emulate his accent. Victor, 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 what good? What good deed have you done to him lately? <laughs> tell me what it was. I go, what do you mean? He said, well, tell me what you did that was good. Because when you do something good, they hate you. <laughs> and he said, this is an old Sikh saying. What good thing have I done to earn this such hatred? <laughs> I mean, every culture has that, that aphorism, but the way he just automatically said it. And, yeah. You know. and Was shocking. <laughs> Well, we had it's had a little fight. bit revealing. Well, I mentioned, on, I think, on a podcast that he stole my water for five years on a communal ditch. And each time that I let it go, he took more and more. And then finally, I got a shotgun and locked it with a padlock and went out and confronted him. And he said, now we can be friends. <laughs> <laughs> now we can be friends. In other words, you've been very nice to me. So I have nothing but utter contempt for you. But if I'm you're going to pull your shotgun on me, I want to be friends yes. with you. Yes. <laughs> so my point is that I am a Christian that believes in the power of the Sermon of the Mount. But I, I understand that most people don't in the world outside of the West. Yes. And so, and so Victor, we are going to go to a break and yep. we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about agriculture in the West and tractors in particular. Stay with us and we'll be right back. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events. And you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. 
We're back. And Victor, so in this segment, this weekend edition, we usually try to get some agriculture in. And I know that you wanted to talk about tractors today. So go ahead. Let us know about the importance of tractors I'm, to agriculture. Yeah. Well, I was born on this where I'm speaking today in 1953. And I had three brothers. I had a twin brother. And he was very athletic, Alfred. He's a wonderful athlete. And I had a cousin that we kind of, their mother died very early and they kind of, we were kind of like brothers. So he was their Reese and he was very athletic. And then I had an older brother who was a writer now. All three are still alive and he was very athletic. But I was kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, the ugly duckling. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they had 20 20 eyesight. And I had 2,400, and I was almost blind. I had thick glasses. They were all right-handed, and I was left-handed, right? And they were naturally – I was not a bad athlete. I played sports, but, you know, if we played football, I was on the JVs, and Alfred, my twin, who was smaller than I was on the varsity. If we went out for baseball, he was first-string shortstop, and I was second-string first base, Right. So I went mm -hmm. into things like wrestling just because I thought I would be better at it. But my point is, they would always ask me to play because we knew I had two and two, right? We needed two guys to play two guys in basketball. And I'd always say, no, I want to read a book. So my mom goes, he's just different. Leave him alone. He's reading Gibbons' Decline of the Roman Empire. And I was like nine. And they said, <laughs> oh, you're come on. You quitter you then i would go out and play and then but one of the things i i always was inquisitive so i'd go to my grandpa what's that tractor's name so i i would i i tried to get an encyclopedic knowledge and so we grew up with ford tractors at first and my grandfather would always tell me we had these things called nine n i know some of you are listening grew up on a farm you know a nine n was really the first revolutionary tractor in the world ford put it out and they'd had the Ferguson Company in England had invented something that was radical. It was called the hydraulic three-point hitch. You probably know that, Sammy. You were, grew up on a farm. And that meant you could put a disc, you could put a cultivator, you could put a spring, a harrow, anything, and you just you just back up to it. And it has a three points. You put the two prongs on the side. You put the tongue in the middle. And then it had a hydraulic lift. You could lift it up. That means you could back up with it because the implement would go above the ground. That was revolutionary. Well, and, I didn't know the name of it, but yes, we did yeah, have a tractor. Like there were these little tiny Ford. You know where I got so attached that you know, like 1983, I was farming and we, need, we needed things to pull bins. So I said, Dad, we should just go buy a nine in. And he said, Yeah, he he grew up on one, my father. So we went he and I went to a, a an auction and bought one for a thousand bucks. And they were twenty-five, no overhead valves, twenty-five horse, I think twenty horse. Uh, it didn't have an alternate course. You could you could fix the brushes yourself on the generator when they'd go out about every, I don't know, two hundred hours. It was really simple. And it started up and it was a little four-cylinder putt putt. And then my grandfather got excited. He said, they got an 8N. That was in, uh, that was before I was born. This this 9N came out in 39. So when I was about 12, my I, they let us uh, drive the the uh, 8N. And you could put your foot on the dry, on the struts that, you know, so you could didn't have to touch the uh, 
steering wheel. You could put your, the, it had long struts. When you turn the wheel, these long shafts guided the front wheels, but you could do it with your own feet. We used to do that. And it would pu- pull these little tiny discs. And then suddenly, I think it was 1946, they came out with this Jubilee and they had as the Ford Jubilee, the NAA. And that was a radical invention because it had overhead valves and the the horsepower went up i think to 38 or 40 with that four-cylinder engine and more importantly my grandfather would talk about and that's the one that i started driving a lot it had an independent pto shaft power takeoff and that you know the power takeoff is that comes off the crankshaft it's the back of the tire and you can put things on it so it spins around you can put a pump on it but on the old ones it was the same as the hydraulic so if you were using the hydraulic lift that came off the pto shaft and you couldn't use the pto but with it with the uh, jubilee you could put an implement like a sulfur machine on uh or you could put hoses on the uh separate hydraulics. We had a separate hydraulic system that didn't rely on the PTO shaft. And that was the foundation of the modern tractor. And then, gosh, when I started, I think I was 11 or 12, they let us go. My grandfather and the hired men, Manuel George and Joe Carey, who's a Native American, and Manuel was part Mexican and Portuguese. And they taught us how to drive a tractor. And we would, not the big disc, but we would furrow out furrows with it. And I remember my brother, I had a uh, a Ford 600, and that was up to 40 horsepower. This was like in 1963, four, and I, we had a little Oliver gas, and then things really heated up by the time I got to high school. Boy, we got a Ford 4000, and that was a three-cylinder British Ford that had, I think it had 48 horsepower, and that would pull a pretty good disc. And... And then I got fascinated because there were all these brands. Trackers were great because they were not just, you know, a monopoly. It was like the early days of cars. So my neighbor, Chuck, had a David Brown. That was a British tractor. And that was before, I think, David Brown. um, David Brown sold out to, hold on, Alice Chalmers. Wait, I'll get it straight. There was a David Brown that was absorbed. And then there was the Oliver was Oliver's were originally a, a British an American company, but they had Italian affiliates. And we had one of the first diesel Olivers. They were wonderful tractors. I drove that for hours. And then it was bought out by White. And then uh I think David Brown was bought out by Case, Case Tractors. But I saw we had neighbors with David Browns. We had neighbors with Olivers. We had neighbors with Whites. And we always had Fords. And then when I started farming, my brother really liked Massey Ferguson's because they had this Perkins engine. It was wonderful diesel. So we had Massey 265. That was at like 60 horsepower at the PTO. And then we had a Massey 275. I don't know if we had a 285, but they they would they would really have a lot of power and they didn't heat up. I Weren't they it. dangerous though? Like their front tires could pop off the ground. And the thing about the all tire, tractors, tractor is, yes. The thing about all tractors is, if you have flat land and you know what you're doing, they're perfectly safe. But we have a lot of hills on our. We had a lot of hills, and you have tractor weights, fifty pound, hundred pound, hundred fifty that you put on the bumper, the front. And a lot of guys 
feel that they, uh, you know, they take a lot of horse, they take some of your horsepower and your fuel efficiency to have all that weight, two or 300 pounds. Yes. But they, because the tractor back tractors are so big, they're inherently unstable, right? Yes. This is before four wheel drive. But so a lot of people would take those weights off. And I know at least two neighbors that put very heavy sulfur machines on the back of the tractor. And then they started to go up and they started to tip over. Oh my God. On a hill. And I had one case where I uh, had gopher holes uh, all over the orchard and I didn't know it. And they were right below the surface and there had been a leak in the pipeline and the water was going and I was going, I had tractor weights and the two back uh, wheels fell into like a little cavern about three feet deep. And I had the tractor pointed up in the air and luckily, and the wheels were spinning, but it's very dangerous because you've got so many things going on at once. You've got the hydraulic system, you've got the PTO. I'll give you just two examples. And I was in a very nihilistic mood uh, when I graduated with a PhD because there was no jobs for white males and there was no jobs anyway from a classical philologist. Can you imagine that in the San Joaquin Valley? And I wanted to come back. I was taking care of my 93-year-old grandmother uh, who had Alzheimer's. And anyway, to make a long story short, I, I was learning, relearning how to drive a tractor from my youth, but they were much more advanced and powerful. I had been away from, I lived in Europe and I was at graduate school under for 10 years. When I came back, my brother was farming and my other, and I had to learn again mm-hmm. And boy, that first year, I'll give you two examples. I had a beautiful Airedale dog. And one thing you never do, if you've got anything pulling, turning on that PTO, you don't have a dog go with you. And this dog was a wouldn't mind. And I had something called a pack tank. That's a 150-gallon spray where you spray Roundup with a wand as you're driving. And the PTO powers it, turns around. It has a plastic cover. And I stopped because there was a leak and I went around the back and the PTO shaft was still, I turned the pump off, but it was still turning. And my dog and her friskiness, when he I got off the tractor, that dog ran over and she had such thick hair, it caught in the collar of the PTO shaft. In one nanosecond, it, it took her one cir- circle, one rotation around and threw her 10 feet in the air and broke her neck in two seconds. And, it, and oh, I was, my God. I, I know it. I just freaked out. And then the next year, I was putting on a very toxic, uh, it was Surflan. It was pre emergent, but I, I can't remember. It was Paraquat, I think. And I was having probably getting pressure. And one thing you never do is you go back to a, pre, uh, a spray tank and you, when it's under pressure, you should turn it off or you should put it, you know, cut the pump off if you're running it to agitate. You have to keep agitating or the, the, the chemicals will collect at the bottom. So I was agitating, but I wanted to have the pump on so I could see where the leak was, you know, because I could I, my pressure was going down and I couldn't hear. Nobody in those days wore protective equipment. We're talking, you know, 45 years ago. I had no earmuffs. I had no protect. I had no goggles, no mask, no plastic suit like they have. There was no closed system where you get your chemical can you put a hose into the the sprayer and you don't touch it you just took it like it was milk and poured it in and splashed everywhere and anyway the the point is with these tractors are very powerful they have big pumps and i went back to look at the leak 
and I could see a pin hair. It was shooting up in the air, and I touched it, and it blew apart. And I had 150 pounds, 100 pounds of pressurized pesticides, pre-emergent herbicide, and on Paraquat spray my entire body, and, and almost immediately I could I could taste like a salmon taste in my mouth. It was that strong. Pigment <sighs> wow. And unfortunately, that was the year I had a part-time Latin class. I had just started. So from my wrist to my shoulder was pure orange. It's kind of like Asian orange. And I went to class, and somebody said, well, you, they thought I had put t- tanning ocean on. <laughs> so I, went, I, I went to the doctor, and, you know, I, I had a really good doctor, and he said, well, you know, they say this has an element of, he looked it up, said, it's got a little bit of Agent Orange, but you'll be okay. You're young. You're not. You're not developing as a kid. You won't get cancer. So, but I could. I was. I was dyed orange for about a month, and that wow. was very dangerous. And we had an Alice. I loved Alice Chambers. We got an Alice Chambers seven thousand. Big. We call it Big Boy. I mean, it's not very big, but for us it was. And it, it's a hundred horsepower. Remember, horsepower is torque, really, in a diesel tractor. So that thing won't stop. And so it had a bad habit of going into gear when you put it in neutral. And my cousin got off it to go take a leak, so to speak, and he left it in neutral. And we ran out there, and it went into gear on itself. And it headed the the tractor shed was maybe 20 yards away. It hit the tractor shed. And then it dug in, and it started to go up the wall. <laughs> and then it, it flipped all the way back on its back with everything, and it was still going. <laughs> How did you guys turn it off? We did. We you... climbed in it. But we I thought it was just going to plow it off, right? But it didn't. <laughs> I thought it would go through it, but it had – it was one of the – it was my grandfather's original shed, so it had an old 1 by 12 redwood, and then we had another layer, and then we'd had – plywood on it so it had three walls so it didn't break it it was going so slow it just it went and made a 360 and can you imagine that thing it was it would have killed anybody we did all sorts of stuff like that and you know my brother cut the tip of his finger off once and my dad was kind of reckless he thought he was always back on a b29 we had a display that wouldn't come off i tried and tried and his answer to everything is put heat on it I said, Dad, it's got internal bearings. It's got grease in there. Put heat on it. <laughs> we had a neighbor, one of our best friends came over, and he said, Bill, be careful. So my dad heated the display up, right? And it exp- it expanded the grease inside the bearing. Oh, no. And it, and it just shot across, and it hit Chuck in the stomach, in the chest. It <gasps> saved the his disc? life. The disc? But it was lucky because it was the curved surface, so it was like a hoplite shield. And it oh. just went across the shed and hit him and knocked him flat, knocked the air out. I thought we killed him. Yeah. <laughs> I said, Dad, I think we killed Chuck. Oh, my God. And he goes, wow. No, he just got the air knocked out of him. We got the deal. We got the display off. That's all. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> he was pretty tough. He was pretty tough, my dad. Boy. Yeah. You know, you know I, he's, he was really. But I learned about track. I love tractors. I would I would just, I would go scout around. We bought all sorts of used tractors. I love Cases and David Browns and Alice Chalmers and Massey Ferguson's and Fords and whites and cases and everything. And it was really, that's what made the ranch go. And my grandfather, when I always talked to him, he said, boys, I have 135 acres. And when I 
Woke up one morning and I got a nine in in 1939. Guess what? I had the old Fortson and I had 60 acres put into production. I said, what do you mean production? You owned it. He said, well, where do you think I got the hay to feed all the horses to to plow the vineyards in the orchard? Oh, so that I makes ha- sense. Yeah. yeah. Ha- half this farm was producing alfalfa just yeah. to fuel the horses. Yeah. And my poor aunt that was crippled from life at seven, Lila, she was such a wonderful person and she was brilliant, but she was completely contorted. She she couldn't, couldn't walk and she'd gone to the Shriners Hospital in San Francisco and they did 17 operations to break her bones in those days and it just made her into a shell of a person. But she was brilliant and she'd always say to me, oh, I wish we had Molly and and Buster back. I said, who were Molly and Buster? Oh, we used to have the most big, biggest horses, these big work horses, and Daddy would put the plow on it. It was so wonderful. They weren't like these stinking diesel tractors. Oh, yes. But it does show you what fossil fuel consumption does for us. Yeah, I know. It it, it almost immediately tripled or doubled production because land was no longer fed for animals. And the horse population just just diminished and we were using much more production. And then the second thing, of course, was nitrogen fertilizer, chemical fertilizers. And all all of you there who say, well, we should use only organic fertilizers. I did that on 20 acres. And and I I love manure. It stopped nematodes, but it brings in weeds and it's stinky and it's bulky. And something about just going on a tractor in fifth or sixth gear with a... uh, uh, a fertilizer rig on the back when you're putting little droplets of calcium nitrate in, you know, and presto, yeah. everything gets bigger. Yeah. Same thing with our organophosphate uh, and organochloride pesticides. I didn't like them, but when you've got a hopper that desiccating all your grape leaves and you go through there with that satanic Dibron 7 dust and they just fall on the ground behind you. You know, that was where Bhopal, India, that terrible accident in India, was at a seven, yeah. seven yeah. plant. That was a horrible, horrible thing. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I keep thinking that that period between 1960, 55 and 1980, before, 85, before we got serious about the dangers. You know, I was just thinking of all the people who grew up in this farm. My mom died at 66 of a brain tumor. My daughter died at 27 of leukemia. My sister-in-law grew up on the farm here. She died at 51 of leukemia. My aunt, who grew up, died at 49 of breast cancer. I just wonder if that was genetic or it was just all that period. Because now, I mean, by a magnitude of 10, we lose less pesticides. I, I watched the guys that put it on the almond orchard they put on less a year than we used to put on a month, everybody. And mm. there's so many things that are banned now. They don't have anything like arsenic or nicotine or, uh, di- you know, diazinon. Well, they still use diazinon, but dimethoate and parathion. And all. I, I saw my neighbor with parathion. I, that thing scared me whenever I – that was kind of a Zygon B and, you know, it was a successor to the, the German – chemical industry that was used in the Holocaust. But when he had a tank of parathion in and it leaked, because they all leak, they say they don't, but they used to all leak. 
dropped off. It was right after a rain, and he came by and started talking to me, and he had his rig, and I could see it dropping. There were puddles all along the alleyway, right? Yeah. And he, and he went away, didn't think of it. The, the next day, I found two dead birds in those petals. Oh, that, that, you know, they just, drank it. Yeah. They, yeah, they just keeled over. It was, I always call parathion and paraquat liquid death. Yeah. Well, Victor, we're at the end of the show. Okay. I'd like to thank you. A nice wander through the past and through the fields yeah, we, we of agriculture. We covered the French and Indian War and tractors and paraquat and Donald Trump's indictment. <laughs> so well, thank you. And thanks to, to the listeners to a, as well. We're trying to be eclectic. <laughs> I got a yes. good, I, I'm getting sensitive because I got a good uh, email from someone. So don't mention Clapper and, and Brennan anymore, Victor. You made your point. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't mention Clapper or Brennan in this episode. Well, I probably so. did, but I, <laughs> I, uh, I like <laughs> people. And we're going to, and, and we're, we're going to, I'm going to, we're going to do some shows because I got to go over for Hillsdale. I, I really love Hillsdale College. And I'm going to go on this uh, three, 17-day uh, speaking part on their cruise Trip. to Istanbul, 16-hour yeah. nice. flight to Istanbul and and on Turkish Airlines, and I'll come back. But in, we're going to broadcast uh, some question and answers from everybody. We haven't done that. Jack yeah. has done that with me a little bit, but we have a lot on the website. All right. Well, we'll do that. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, and thanks okay. to our listeners. Thank you, everybody. This is, this is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hanson. We're signing off. If you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters, millions. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why does the IRS target you and not millionaires? Here's the reason, because millionaires have tax lawyers and you don't. You'll pay up plus interest plus penalties. You need Tax Network USA and you need it now, Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor, like a preferred direct line to the IRS. They know which agents to deal with and which ones to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify, schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. Call 1-800-245-6000. Again, call 1-800-245-6000 or visit tnusa.com slash victor.